of God brings heaven to earth. It leaves culture upturned and the kingdom upright. The kingdom is pure and holy. It is blessed and set apart. It is righteous beyond all understanding. It is generous beyond earning. Our God's kingdom is good news. His kingdom is saving grace. It rattles our reality and shakes us awake. And it pours out of us as salt and as light. It brings perspective that changes the way we think. It brings vision that changes the way we see. It brings growth that changes who we are. It brings surrender that changes how we live. The kingdom is kindness that doesn't feel fake. And the kingdom is patience that doesn't make sense. It is forgiveness when it doesn't seem possible. It is for the poor in spirit, the lowly, and the persecuted. The kingdom is his, his kingdom is ours, and the kingdom of God is here. Hey, Cornwall Church, good to have you here today. So glad that you've joined us, no matter where you're joining from. Those of you in our Skagit campus that are, uh, that are on site, it's good to have you with us uh, this weekend. Those of you here in our Bellingham uh, building, it's nice to have you back in the building. And did you notice the new carpet in that great and the extended legroom? That's fantastic. Those of you watching online, I know the vast majority of you are at home or, or maybe in your car or, or, or about various places around. So glad you're with us. And from around, I mean, from, from Belize to Germany and from Kansas to Camas, all over the place to be here. And we are in our second week of this Kingdom Culture series that we started last week. And we are going to spend 12 weeks total looking at the best sermon ever. We started this last week, and if you weren't able to be with us last week, um, I would advise maybe if you have the time to go back and either watch that or listen to that because it laid the foundation of what Jesus taught about the kingdom of God. And we're going to be referencing back to that throughout this series. Now, you don't have to, but it will help kind of lay the foundation for that. So we're going to continue on looking at this best sermon ever that Jesus taught. And early on in his ministry, uh, when he's about 30 years old, he goes to be baptized. He goes to the Jordan River and he's being baptized by his relative, John, John the Baptist. That's, that's his nickname because he's baptizing people. And, and he's baptized by his relative, John. When he comes up out of the water, the spirit descends from heaven like a dove upon him. And there's a voice from heaven that says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. It's one of those rare moments where you see Jesus, the son, the Holy Spirit, the voice of the father, the Trinity, the three and one. And he, and he says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Directly following that, he goes into the wilderness and he's tempted. And what I find really kind of interesting is how the enemy goes after his identity. He's just heard from heaven, this is my son, but twice the enemy comes to him and says, if you really are the son of God, which is sometimes what the enemy does to us. We sing that song, I am who you say I am. I'm going to hold to that. I'm not going to waver. But the enemy kind of tests him on, do you really think that you're the son of God? And then he begins to tempt him, things that about the kingdoms of this world, pleasure and comfort, like food, because he's hungry. He tempts him with that. He tempts him with things like, like control and power. He says, why don't you throw yourself off the temple and see if the angels will pick you up? And then he tempts him with, with greatness and, and recognition. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus resists all of those temptations. 
And after he comes out of the wilderness, after the 40 days uh, in the wilderness of prayer and fasting and the temptation, he starts his public ministry. And this is where we pick up in Matthew chapter 4, and it says this, Jesus went throughout Galilee, which is in the northern part of Israel, up, up in the northern side. He goes throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, plural, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria. So Jesus is going up, and he's going from town to town, from village to village, and he's bringing the good news of the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. And we talked about that a bit last week. Now, some of you would say, well, good news. So it was on CNN, and others say, no, 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 good news. It must have been on Fox. Jesus says, listen, the good news is not CNN or Fox. The good news is the kingdom of God. And here's the good news, is that the kingdom of God is now available through Jesus for ordinary human beings, ordinary people, here and now, so that daily we can live and experience the presence and the power of God. And this was the message that was going out. And news about this Jesus began to spread. And people would bring their friends to hear this Jesus and to see Jesus. And you begin to see what kind of friends they would bring. It says this, And people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. So what you see here is this group of people. It's not your average prayer meeting group here. Now, and, and I don't mean this negative for anyone that may have uh, any of these conditions, but in their culture, this was seen as a freak show. These were the outcasts. These were the misfits. These were the untouchables. These were the undesirables. These were the ones who didn't get invited. These were the ones who were unclean. These were the ones who didn't get to go to the temple. And they're bringing him to Jesus. They're bringing him to Jesus. And Jesus makes it very clear, this one message, that there is new life in the kingdom through Jesus. New life, yes, in being healed, but there's this new life in this reality. Not just so that they can go to the temple, not just so they can go to church for an hour and 10 minutes, but so that they can live 24-7 in the presence and the power of God. And all of this is happening up in the north end of, of Israel. And up there by the Sea of Galilee, in this area called the Galilee, in the Sea of Galilee, on the northwest corner, up on a hill, there's a Roman Catholic church. I have a picture of it. It's a Roman Catholic church. It was designed by an architect named Antonio Barlucci. He's done quite a few different churches in Israel. And as an architect, it's maybe 100 years old or so. As an architect, he would always design the story of what happened at these places into these churches that he would build. They're, they're, they're fascinating that he, just the architecture tells the story. This Roman Catholic church has eight sides. It's an octagon, which is very unusual for a, for a Roman Catholic church. But the reason is each of the sides represents one of the Beatitudes, this church of the Beatitudes. And there's stained glass windows with each of the Beatitudes. And it's up on this hill. And from this, the, from this church, you can look out on the beautiful, fertile fields of the hill. You can look down to see the Sea of Galilee. It's, it's, it's absolutely spectacular. It's a beautiful, beautiful location. And traditionally, it's believed that this is where Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount. Whether or not exactly it was, we don't know. But traditionally, for hundreds of years, it's been known as the site where Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount. That's what we're studying, the best sermon ever. It's found in Matthew. There's also a shortened version found in Luke, but we're focusing on Matthew, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Now, I challenged you, if you were here last week, I challenged you to read through this sermon. 
And you can read through it in one setting in about 10 minutes. That's not speed reading. And there's not a lot of huge big words that you have to sound out about 10 minutes. And I know what some of you are thinking right now. I wish our pastor only preached 10 minutes. Well, here, here's the reality. When Jesus is your pastor, you'll get 10-minute sermons. Until then, I have to work a lot harder, and it takes me a lot longer to try and figure some of this stuff out and explain it. So it's 107 verses, all these red-letter verses, Jesus' words that he tells in the Sermon on the Mount. And what's amazing is so, it's so profound and so packed full of stuff that even if you have not read it or studied it, there are things that you've heard of that came out of the Sermon on the Mount, things you've heard of even if you're not even like a church person, don't even know what the Bible says, things you've heard in our popular culture and vernacular that come out of the Sermon on the Mount. Let me just kind of run through this. Like he, he talks about things like, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. I mean, I, I've heard that in settings way outside of the church. How about this? You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world, straight out of the Sermon on the Mount. Or, you know, um, you've heard it said, but I tell you, you've heard it said, Love your neighbor, hate your enemy, but I'm telling you things like turn the other cheek, go the second mile, or how about this? Don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. How about that prayer that some of you prayed your whole life? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. The Lord's Prayer, Sermon on the Mount. Or lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. How about this one? Don't worry, you know. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Or seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Or don't worry about tomorrow. Each day has enough trouble of its own. All of this out of the Sermon on the Mount. One of the verses that you didn't even know was in the Sermon on the Mount, some of you quote it all the time because it's the only thing you have. You say, well, doesn't the Bible say don't judge? And you use that all the time. Don't judge. Doesn't the Bible say don't judge? Sermon on the Mount. Judge not lest you be judged. Take the log out of your own eye before you take the speck out of someone else's eye. Don't throw pearls before swine or before pigs. All, all Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. How about this one? Golden rule. Do unto others what you would have others do unto you. Right out of the Sermon on the Mount. The, 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 the wide is the way that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way that leads to life. On and on again, you just see these statements. You know, the one who builds his house on a rock or builds his house in the sand. It's all in the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus just preaches through this so much. In fact, we will not come close to hitting all the different pieces in the Sermon on the Mount, and we definitely will not plumb the depths of this. It's very well known, a lot of this stuff. In fact, John Stott said this. The Sermon on the Mount is probably the best-known part of the teaching of Jesus, Though arguably, it is the least understood, and certainly, it is the least obeyed. And my prayer and my hope for us this fall is that this is not said of us. I want us to know what the Sermon on the Mount says, what Jesus said, but I want us to understand it better, and more than anything, I want us to live it and obey it and follow Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. So today, we're going to jump into this greatest sermon ever, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. We're going to look at, if you have your Bible, and it starts off this way, and Jesus, seeing the crowd, went up on a mountainside, and he sat down. And his disciples came to him, and he began teaching them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called the sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he says, and blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and say uh, falsely against you because of me, all kinds of things. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets. This passage of scripture, these 12 verses, are often referred to as the Beatitudes, which is a word that some of us have used and never really thought, what does that even mean? It comes, it's from a Latin founding called the, the Beatus, which we translate uh, into the word blessed. Now, when it starts off, it says, he saw the crowds. Remember the kind of crowds that he's been attracting. And, and, and Jesus sees them and doesn't see them just as a mass of humanity to, to, to get away from. He sees the crowd. He sees that they're gripped by fear. They're gripped by worry. They're gripped by anxiety. They're tired. They've been suffering. Uh, they, they feel like they, they don't belong. They're outcasts. He sees that. In fact, there's another place in, uh, I think it's Matthew chapter 9, where it says, he looked upon the crowds and he saw, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He sees this mass of humanity and he sees their hurt, and he sees their pain, and he goes up on the mountainside, and he begins to teach them. And this is what he says, Matthew chapter 5, verse 2. He says, and he began to teach them, saying, blessed. Or sometimes we'll say, blessed. Why we do that, I, I don't know. It's old English, I suppose. Blessed, blessed. This is the word beatitude, beatus. And he began to wonder, okay, so, so what is that? I mean, that, that's a word we don't use a whole lot. Someone sneezes, we might use it, bless you, or God bless you if we're really feeling spiritual. Or I'm from the South, and, and there's a little phrase in the South, you know, I'll bless his heart, which means he's an idiot. I'll bless her heart. She didn't have a clue. It's kind of a, it's kind of a Christian slang for you're just an idiot. So anyway, we don't use that word a whole lot. So we begin to ask, well, what does it even mean? Well, the Latin is beatus. The Greek word is, um, um, is makarios, makarios, and it's best translated as happy, happy. Now, it can be incredibly fortunate, lucky, but happy, which seems like such a shallow word for Jesus, and maybe it's because we see it that way. I mean, we think about happiness. Well, we can get that anywhere. You, you go to McDonald's, lay a few bucks down, and you can get a happy meal. Here's a bag of stuff that has more nutrition in the bag than what's actually in the bag, but you get a toy, and it makes you happy. All due respect to Pastor Brian, there are places in this world where you can go that are billed as the happiest place on earth. It's a magic kingdom run by a mouse named Mickey. There's happiness. Or, or even the mantra that we have in our, in our, our, in our, uh, our uh, Declaration of Independence. Thomas Jefferson wrote in there, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so we say, well, we can get happiness in all these things. Could it be that when Jesus said, blessed, makarios, happy, that it's a deeper meaning? That there's something more significant, more substance than just this? Because it's happy, but it's by kingdom standards. According to kingdom standards, you say, oh, okay, so it's not the kind of happiness I really want. No, 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 wait, 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 you've missed it. 
You remember what Jesus said? This is good news. That the kingdom of God now through Jesus is available to everyone, human beings, here and now, that we can live and experience the power and the presence of God here today and every single day. That the happiest place on earth might be at McDonald's. It might be at Disneyland. It might be in the United States. But it has nothing to do with a meal, a mouse, or a mantra. It has everything to do with the fact that the presence and the power of God dwells right within us and we can walk in step with this king in his kingdom that we're a part of right here and right now. So he gives these beatitudes. And we have to be a little bit careful. As John Stott said, sometimes these things are vastly misunderstood. And there's some misunderstandings around a lot of the teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And there's different ways to look at the beatitudes. Sometimes people approach the beatitudes as like a cafeteria plan. Well, let's see. I could use a little more of mercy maybe, and uh, how about uh, pure in heart? I could use a little bit more of those two. I'll just kind of pick and choose. Or sometimes people think, well, th- this must be like kind of eight different kinds of people. There, you know, there's the poor in spirit, and then there's the meek people, and there's all these things. It's kind of like a, like a first century uh, Myers-Briggs, or a first century Enneagram type deal. Jesus saying these are different kinds of people. Probably one of the best ways to look at, the, at these eight attributes in the, uh, in the Beatitudes is to see them as eight facets of kingdom citizens. That if we're in the kingdom of God, there are these facets that are evident in all of us. And that's one of the ways that you can look at that. And, and we're going to hit that um, a bit today. Now, speaking of today, we are not going to cover all eight of the Beatitudes. In fact, years ago, I did an entire series, eight-week series on the Beatitudes. There's so much. We're basically going to look at two, and really we're going to look primarily at one and just a little bit at another one. The one that we're going to look at most, spend the most of our time with, is the very first Beatitude when Jesus said these words, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, This seems counterintuitive. Wait a second. Poor in spirit and heaven, you would think it would be rich in spirit, people that are very spiritual, but these people are happy, they're poor in spirit, and theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And while this is counterintuitive, contained within this statement, contained within this truth, is the essence of why Jesus said, this is good news. And I want to camp on this for a bit today. Let me give you an illustration uh, from two events that happened in my life. One of them is a specific event. One of them is a compilation of events. The first one is the compilation. When I was in the fifth grade, I went to Lincoln Elementary School. And in our fifth grade class, um, during recess, after lunch, whenever we're out on the playground, we would very often play kickball, basketball, softball, football, what have you. And before those games started, we would pick teams. There were two guys in our age, in our fifth grade class, that far excelled in athletic abilities. John Summerhour and Steve Chambers. These two guys could never be on the same team because it would be the two of them against the whole class of the fifth grade and they would win. All right, so they were always team captains. So Steve, Cham- uh, Steve Chambers and John Summerhour would start picking teams. And you know how, some of you know how this goes. Everyone lines up and they start picking. And they, I mean, it's kind of like the NFL draft. You know, your first round, you know, you know, you're good. They want you on your team. And then they get to the point where it gets down to, there's a few of us still out there. And I say us 
Because then they begin to fight over, you know, <laughs> whose team do I have to go on? You take them. No, we took them. We had them last time. And I get that. Or sometimes they would pick and say, okay, the teams are full. We aren't going to take any more. You guys go play on the swings or the monkey bars or what have you. And listen, I know what it's like to be the last one picked. Any, I mean, I don't care if you're in the building or if you're at home or driving. Any of you know what that's like? Go ahead and raise your hand, all right? That's us. I mean, we, we get that. Okay, that happened to me multiple times in the fifth grade. I understand that. Fast forward about 15 years, and a very specific thing happened. I was a youth pastor at Cornwall Church here, Cornwall Park Church of God in those days. I was a youth pastor here. And a friend of mine, who was also a youth pastor, we did a retreat with our two youth groups. <clears throat> and as we brought these youth groups together, because our youth groups were relatively small, we had, I don't know, somewhere between 50 or 60 kids at this retreat. And because our youth groups were small, we had the middle school and the high school kids all at this same retreat, 50 or 60 of us. So with everything else, we're going to have, you know, worship, we're going to have times of teaching, and there's going to be fun, free time, but then there was going to be some competition. And we had an idea. So we pulled what we thought were the four, like, most athletic guys from this whole group and pulled them aside into a side room and said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to pick teams, and you guys are going to be team captains. You're going to act like you don't know that because we're going to call you out of the crowd, but we want to let you know that. And when we do, we're going to have you up front, and then we're going to have you pick teams. Here's the only rule. We want you to do this in reverse order. We want that scrawny kid, that, uh, you know, uncoordinated girl, whatever, the one that you would say, that's the last one I'm on my team, we want you to pick him or her first. We want the, the one that you really want on your team to be the last one out in the group. So that was the plan. We're going to just kind of do this in reverse order. So that night, we're all out in, the, in, this, in this little room, the big meeting room, said, okay, I need this guy, this guy, these four guys, have them come up. I said, okay, we're going to do some competition, and we're going to have teams. So instead of assigning teams, because there's two different youth groups, we're going to pick teams. These guys are going to pick teams. And since they didn't really know each other, the youth groups, they had to kind of point because they didn't know all the names. So I said, they're going to pick teams. So the first guy, I said, okay, you're going to pick first. And, and I'm thinking, okay, you've got to think, who is it that you really least want on your team? So he picked me. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> he, he, uh, he, he pointed at this girl, and because he didn't know her name, he said, you, and different ones around stood up and said, no, not you, not, no, not you, her. And she's like, he said, yeah, you, I want you on my team. She's like never been picked first for anything ever, especially athletic stuff. And so we started going, to, and you should have seen these guys. They're like, I can't, I, he wants me on my, I, and I'm the first pick. Well, Jesus comes along, he introduces the kingdom. He says, there's a new kingdom here. I'm the captain and I'm picking the teams. So here's the good news. If you, and now I'm not talking about Jesus, I'm talking about you watching right now. If you have ever felt like, I don't know that I fit in this whole God thing. I'm not religious. I can't pray out loud. I don't know the Bible. I, I thought Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. I, I don't know any of this stuff. I mean, this is all new to me, and I've made some big mistakes, and I've got some habits, and I've got some stuff in my life. It, it, this is good news for you. Because Jesus comes along, and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. I picked them. They're invited into the kingdom of God. These are the ones that are spiritually bankrupt. 
These are the spiritual zeros. These are the spiritual misfits. These are the spiritual outcasts. These are the ones that no one wants on their team. Jesus comes along and says, don't you understand? It's not about what you've achieved. It's not about what you know. This kingdom, it's like the anti-DIY. It's the anti-do-it-yourself. He says, it's not about what you're gonna do. If it was about what you could do, it wouldn't be called the good news of the kingdom. It'd be the good works of the kingdom. It'd be the good job of the kingdom. It'd be good boy, you're in the kingdom. Good girl, you can come be a part of the He says, it's not about do it yourself. And it's not because you're poor in spirit. This is important. It's in spite of the fact that you're poor in spirit. And this is why it's good news that Jesus says, you're in the kingdom of God. You see, it's not about what we can do in and of ourselves. People that are in recovery circles, they get this. People that work the 12 steps, they get this. I mean, this first beatitude is like the three steps, first steps of, of the 12 steps, kind of all wrapped up in one. That, that first step is to admit, man, I'm powerless. My, my life is a mess. It's unmanageable. I can't do this. That's the first step. That's like I'm poor in spirit. I, I, don't, I don't have it. Step two is to believe that there's a greater power that can bring sanity back to my life. And step three is say, you know what, then? I decide I'm going to turn over my life and my will to this greater power, to God, as I understand it. Jesus said, don't you see, that's, that's the poor in spirit who don't come in with all of their list of accomplishments and all their accolades they come in and say, I've never been picked for a team like this. And Jesus said, that's why it's good news. Not because you're poor in spirit, but in spite of the fact that you are. See, everything in our human nature doesn't want to say that. We don't want to admit that. We want to think we're okay. Listen, this isn't new. This has been happening forever. I mean, in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus is talking to a group of people in Laodicea. It's a town, it's not, not pertinent to our, our sermon. He's talking to them, and this is what he says in Revelation chapter three. You say, I am rich, I've acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. I'm self-sufficient, got it all covered. I can handle this, I'm on it. And Jesus says, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. You've got yourself talked into believing that you've got it all going on. You've got it all handled. You've got it covered. But you don't realize it's self-deception. And we all do this. I mean, it's not, not very flattering to say, I, I'm, I'm a train wreck. I got nothing. I, I love how uh, Timothy Keller says, he says, we all want to be middle class in spirit. Don't want to be poor in spirit. We want to be middle class, maybe even upper middle class. And we'll say, well, I'm not Billy Graham. I'm not Mother Teresa. We always use those two. That's like upper class. And quite frankly, most of you say, I'm not sure that I want to be that good. All right? Just let's be honest, okay? You say, I'm, I'm more of a middle class guy. I'm a more of an upper middle class gal when it comes to spiritual things. I'm, I'm, I'm not poor in spirit because then we start comparing ourselves to everybody else and to the worst case scenario. And, and besides, I've done this. And we start listing off all these things. We kind of want to be middle class in spirit. And Jesus said, that's not going to get it. 
Here's the ones that are really happy. Here's the ones who recognize this is good news. Say, I, I don't have anything. I, I grew up in church singing hymns. Many of you did as well. Grew up singing the hymn, Rock of Ages. And Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself. There's a verse. It's not in every hymn book. But there's a verse of Rock of Ages that goes this way. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. That's being poor in spirit, recognizing it and saying, there's a power greater than me that can make my life have some sanity and I'm turning my life and my will over to that power and that's Jesus Christ. It's to say, I come empty-handed and open-handed. And when we come with our hands full of all of our efforts and all of our stuff, he says, I can't fill closed hands. You come empty and open and I can do something with that. And this was the message that Jesus taught. It's what he modeled. It's what he lived over and over again. There was a time when he was at the temple in Jerusalem, and there were like all the, uh, the spiritual elites. Um, it says that there were the, the chief priests, not just priests, not the low priests, the chief priests and the elders. These are like the upper echelon. This is the top level. These are the, the top picks. And they begin to question Jesus on some stuff, and, and Jesus is brilliant. He, he, he sends it back with a story, and then kind of does this, riddle me this on this one. He says, you know, kind of, hey, here's, uh, here's what this story is. What do you think? And at the end of it, he has this mic drop moment that actually ended up costing him his life. But he says, and I alluded to this last week, in the midst of this, remember, chief priest, elders, everyone looks up at these. Everyone thinks these are the most spiritual elite there are. And he says to them, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors, boo, and the prostitutes, oh, are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. You don't think that raised some eyebrows? That's not good news to the religious. You know who that's good news to? The tax collectors and the prostitutes, they're saying, what, me? You're, you're, wait, wait, me? You're picking me? It's not because you're poor in spirit. It's not because you're a tax collector. It's not because you're a prostitute. It's in spite of the fact that you are. You're invited into the kingdom of God. My dad was a pastor in Vancouver, Washington, all through the 70s, all through the 80s, and all through the 90s. And um, there was a day in his ministry where his secretary, that's what they were called back in those days, his secretary buzzed his office and said, uh, Pastor Marvel, there's someone on the phone, a woman from the community that would like to speak with you. And so he picked up the phone, and the woman said, is this, is this the pastor of the Vancouver First Church of God? And he says, yes, it is. My name is Gerald. Uh, how, yeah, what can I do for you? How can I help you? And she said, are you familiar with the colonial apartments? He said, no, I, I'm not familiar with them. She said, then you're probably not familiar with the fact that there are prostitutes that work out of the colonial apartments. He said, no, I, I was not aware of that either. And then she said, so you're probably not aware that some of the prostitutes who work out of the colonial apartments have been coming to your church on Sunday morning. And he said, no, I, I was not aware of that. And she was very upset. And she said, 
I want to know, are the prostitutes of the colonial apartments welcome at your church? And my dad responded this way. He said, Madam, which he said he probably shouldn't have used that term. Madam, not only are the colonial apartments prostitutes welcome, but every prostitute in Portland and Vancouver greater area are welcome at my church. Because Jesus said, this kingdom is now available to the poor in spirit, not because they're a poor in spirit, but in spite of the fact they're welcome to come and experience my power and my presence in their life. There was another time when Jesus was having dinner with a prominent Pharisee. You remember the Pharisees, they're up there. This is a prominent Pharisee. The scripture points that out very specifically. Sounds like there's quite a few people at this, this uh, gathering. They're having a meal together. And someone yells out, it's undisclosed yeller. If, if, I'm guessing if Peter was there, it's probably him. But anyway, someone yells out, blessed is he who eats of the feast in the kingdom of God, which sounds like an awesome Jesus statement. He started all this stuff with blessed, Makarios, happy. He's all about the kingdom of God. Now he's talking about this feast. And Jesus doesn't say anything directly, but tells a story. It's found in Luke 14. He tells a story about a big feast in a kingdom. It's not hard to connect the dots on this one. And how the people who would be expected to show up at this feast in this kingdom don't come. And they've got all kinds of excuses and all kinds of things. And at the end of the story, he says this, the servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Before you start making judgments here, hold on a second. In that culture, he's not just talking about people who are financially destitute or people that are physically disabled. In that culture, the thought and the idea surrounding people who had these conditions is that they were suffering a curse from God, that it was something they did or something their parents did, that God's mad at them, that God is cursing them. God wants nothing to do with them. God is punishing them. God doesn't want them in his kingdom. And Jesus said, look who gets invited to this table. Those who you think God wants nothing to do with. Those who are poor in spirit. Not because they're poor in spirit, but in spite of the fact that they're poor in spirit. Last week, I referenced uh, Dallas Willard's book, um, Divine Conspiracy. And again, I, I told you, for 15 years, I've been picking my way through this book. And every time I go through, I get a little bit more out of it. Willard, in talking about this, pair of, or this, uh, this beatitude, he said, what would that look like for us today? And he starts off with kind of some silly examples, those who are balding, those who are fat, those who are whatever, the, whatever you know, our culture says is not the pretty people. He says, but maybe it's more somber than that. And maybe this is who Jesus would talk about today. And he does this list. The flunkouts and dropouts and burnouts, the broken, the broken, the drug heads and the divorced, the HIV positive and the herpes ridden, the brain damaged, the incurably ill, the barren and the pregnant too many times or at the wrong time, the overemployed, the underemployed, the unemployed, the unemployable, the swindled, 
the shoved aside, the replaced, the lonely, the incompetent, the stupid, the emotionally starved or emotionally dead. Maybe these would be the people that Jesus would be talking about today. And then he says, let's take it one step further. Murderers and child molesters, the brutal and the bigoted, drug lords, serial killers, pornographers, war criminals, sadists, terrorists, the perverted and the filthy and the filthy rich, the pederast and the perpetrator of incest, the worshiper of Satan, those who rob the aged and the weak, the cheat, the liar, the bloodsucker, and the vengeful. And everything inside of me says, wait, 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 whoa, hold on a second. Not that group. But if the good news is good news for a guy like me, then the good news is good news for anybody. Not because, and it's not saying there shouldn't be justice, and it's not saying they should get off, and it doesn't mean that, that they shouldn't have you know, consequences. That's not what he's saying. But the good news of the kingdom is the poor in spirit, this is their blessed day because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. That they can experience the power and the presence of God here and now, every day. And I know, I know some of us say, well, well, if we start picking and choosing who this is good news for, who made us the judge, and how will we ever get into the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, it's an open invitation. And some of you who know your scriptures well say, yes, but, Bob, don't forget, there are places where it talks about those who won't inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, you're talking about like uh, in Corinthians chapter six, where it says this. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's what you're talking about. And then he gives his own list. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. What do you do with that, Bob? What do you do with that? Okay. I'll tell you what I do with that. I keep reading. Because verse 11 says this. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. It's not because of what you have done. It's because of what Jesus has done. And Jesus says in these first 13 words, how blessed, how fortunate, how lucky, how happy are those who are poor in spirit, not because they're poor in spirit, but in spite of the fact, because of what Jesus has done, the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Now see, if we were gonna do all eight of these Beatitudes, we'd be here for a very long time. But that's why there's good news. All right, let's, let's fast forward, uh, and I gotta, I gotta fly through this, uh, to verse seven. Verse seven, it says this. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive, uh, they will be shown mercy. So like that first part, it's like this is, you know, this is how we get into the kingdom. Then he starts saying, this is what it looks like when people are in the kingdom. This is how they operate, that there's this mercy. And, and I love, uh, Tim Keller talks about the difference between grace and mercy. And I'd never heard this before. In fact, when I first heard him say it, it I kind of recoiled as well. He says, grace is wonderful. I and mean, we sing amazing grace. This, you know, this is amazing grace. It's amazing stuff, of course. He says, but merciful is 
in some ways, more beautiful than grace. And I'm like, whoa, 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 easy, Tim. He says, let me explain it this way. Grace is giving someone something that they don't deserve. That's unmerited favor. Mercy is more beautiful. Because mercy means that because of the suffering and the hardship of someone else, I'm moved with empathy. Moved not just to feel it, but moved in such a way to do something to alleviate their suffering and their pain, even if it's at extravagant sacrifice and cost to me. And here we go on to say, because you can show grace without having mercy. Just write a check. Just sign it off. Just tell them it's not a big deal. You've given them what they don't deserve, but you don't feel anything. Mercy, on the other hand, is something that involves us. It's that kingdom bringer. It's bringing up there down here. And mercy becomes the basis of all of our relationships in this kingdom. But probably, uh, and especially in these days, a verse that you hear over and over again. As Israel was going through all the religious motions and through the prophet Micah in chapter 6, verse 8, God says, he has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. See, when we remember that we're poor in spirit and we come empty-handed and we've been shown unbelievable amounts of mercy from God, how could we do anything else or anything less than be merciful you say, okay, well, it says, blessed are the mercy, merciful, for they will be shown mercy. So does that mean we have to do that first, and then we get the mercy, and which comes first? Is that like earning it? Or oh, no, 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 slow down. Because we have received mercy, we are merciful. And because we know we will continue to receive mercy, we are merciful. Uh, Gordon McDonald, some of you may remember him, in the, uh, probably in the 80s, wrote the book, Ordering Your Private World. He turned 80 this year. And I heard an interview with him. He's got these 15 points of the view from 80, looking back on life for 80 years. Now these you know, bullet points of what he says, you know, these are like the important things from my perspective. And one of the things that he put on his list was this, was to revisit the cross regularly, to go back and remember the price that was paid to allow us to be in the kingdom, to go back and to remember that we came with nothing, empty our hands were empty, we came. And it's to the cross we cling. Uh, again, that, that hymn that I grew up singing at Calvary, mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty. At Calvary, there's mercy there. And when you go back to recognize how merciful God has been to us, and you recognize how merciful God has been to you, then to act any way less than merciful is an absolute tragedy. And to be merciful in our relationships. What we will see throughout this is that the kingdom focus is always others. It's always others. How can we bring up there down here? How can we be impacted here so we can make a difference there? How can the kingdom of God break into our life so it can break out into our world and impact the lives of other people? In Philippians chapter 2, it says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourself. Each of you should look not to your own interests, but also to the interest of others. Your attitude should be, your attitude should be, 
the same as that of Christ Jesus. Your attitude be the same as Christ Jesus. Little play in words. The beatitude is Christ Jesus because the beatitudes are a portrait of Jesus. They're a portrait of Christ and we are called to be more like him. We are called to follow his example. So here's Jesus, the creator and the author of life. And he says, let me tell you, let me tell you the happiest place on earth. Let me tell you the blessed life. Follow my example. Let me tell you, it's living in this kingdom. It's living in the presence and the power of God. It's becoming more like Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians, we read these words. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Okay, now listen, I'm out of time, but I want to just say this. What if, I mean, the, the Sermon on the Mount is so full. What if these two little beatitudes that we looked at, one more extensively than the other, what if we just began to live with these two? Imagine how it would change our lives if we recognized and lived with this reality, not in a belittling ourselves, but a reality of here's the good news. I am poor in spirit. I've got nothing to offer that allows me to come into the kingdom of God. That's why I'm so happy. Our worship would go off the charts in its intensity. Our gratitude would be overflowing. Our humility would be genuine, real, and sincere. And what if? We recognize how much mercy we received at the cross and how much mercy we receive because his mercies are new every day. And we began to be people who are merciful. Jesus says, listen, I'm telling you, you want to be fully alive? That's where you're going to have the full life. It's in the kingdom of God, becoming more like Jesus Christ and living these beatitudes.